Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Today marks the 30th anniversary of the 1987 stock market crash. You know, it's hard to believe that it's been 30 years. I still remember where I was when the crash happened and my reaction to it. You know, it happened just after I had graduated from the University of California, Berkeley. I graduated in 1987. Based on when I graduated high school in 81, I should have graduated in 1985. But I took two years off between my junior and, uh, and sophomore years. And so I graduated uh, two years later. So I got out summer of 1987. I had begun my job search. And you know, by the time the crash happened, I had already accepted a job uh, down in uh, Newport Beach, California. I was going to be working in the uh, commodity options market. And, but I hadn't started yet, so it, the crash began a few weeks before I was on the job, but I do remember uh, first getting there. In fact, I remember I met one guy uh, who had a lot of S&P 500 puts uh, for clients and who, uh, for him anyway, the crash was uh, a great thing because he was able to make a lot of money uh, because he had puts on the S&P uh, 500. Of course, the S&P, a fraction of its current value, uh, market is up dramatically since the 1987 crash, which is the lesson that everybody hopes that you learn, right? Hey, don't worry about the market. And if it ever goes down, it's going to come back up. And I remember some of the catalysts that were weighing heavily on the stock market leading up to the the crash in October of 87 was the fact that the dollar was weakening. The dollar was weakening as a result of increasing trade deficits, trade deficits that are tiny in comparison to the enormous ones that we run today, yet nonetheless, people were rightly worried about them back then. They, they couldn't care less about the trade deficits now. Also, interest rates were rising. You know, the yield on the 30-year bond, nobody really talked about the 10-year back then. It was all the 30-year. And the yields on the 30-year bonds uh, were 9%, and they were going up. So you had 9% interest rates, uh, interest rates rising, the dollar falling, trade deficits getting bigger, and the stock market had pretty much ignored uh, what pretty much everybody agreed was bad news at the time, and the stock market kept going up anyway. Uh, despite all that, then eventually it all came crashing down in, in one day. You know, one of the things that I remember about that was how Alan Greenspan reacted, and I talked about this, I think, on a prior 
a podcast, but I want to bring it up again based on, you know, the anniversary of the crash, was that Greenspan hadn't been in the Fed chair that long. He took over from Paul Volcker, but I knew Greenspan. I was familiar with him uh, because he was a libertarian Austrian economist. He had written that essay on gold and economic freedom, which I had read as, you know, part of Ayn Rand's Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. If you haven't read that book, uh, you should. But so I knew Greenspan. And I had initially expected a different reaction uh, from Greenspan, especially since I knew how critical he had been of the Federal Reserve in the 1920s and its role in uh, propping up the stock market and inflating a bubble and contributing to the crash that ushered in the Great Depression. So I thought, well, clearly, Alan Greenspan, who was so critical of the Federal Reserve in the past, is not going to uh, do the same thing. And I was very surprised when that's exactly what he did. And so I wrote a couple of letters to Alan Greenspan, one telling him that I was a fan of his. uh, And so I had a lot of respect for him. But I was also curious as to, you know, why it didn't seem that he was holding true to his principles. And so Alan Greenspan decided to take the time to answer my letters. And of course, I was 24 years old at the time I wrote them. And uh, there weren't even any computers back then, right? I'm pretty sure I typed it up on a on a typewriter. I don't remember if I wrote them by hand or I typed them up. Uh, but the replies that I got from Alan Greenspan were also uh, typed on a, on, a, on a typewriter. I still have the original envelopes uh, that they were mailed in. And of course, they, they, do, they were stamped. Remember, the Federal Reserve technically is not a government agency. So when you get mail from the Federal Reserve, there's an actual stamp. Right. If you get mail from a government agency, if you, the IRS sends you something, which is part of the Treasury Department, there's no stamp on it. Right. The government doesn't have to buy stamps from itself. Right. So they're just able to frank the, the, the letters. And so all government agencies can send U.S. mail for free. But the Federal Reserve, because it's technically a private company, when they send letters, they have to go out and actually buy a stamp. So when you get a letter from the Federal Reserve, there's a stamp on it. U.S. posted paid. So I still have the, uh, the letters with the stamps on them and the original content inside the envelope. Now, I don't have copies of the letters that I sent Alan Greenspan. I mean, I didn't make a photocopy of them. Obviously, I don't have the originals. Uh, so the only way that they exist is if Alan Greenspan happened to save a copy, which I, I seriously doubt that he would have saved my letters. I mean, I saved his because I was, you know, a kid getting a letter from the chairman of the Federal Reserve. So I, I kept, I held on to it. I, here, I've had them for 30 years now, right? Uh, but I'm sure mine have been tossed in the trash can. So, and I don't remember exactly what I wrote, but I can tell from the letters that, that he wrote me. And I'm going to read the first one because it's very short. But, and you can, again, both of these letters are on the Shift Radio website. So you can actually check them out, read them for yourself. But... Dear Mr. Schiff, thank you for your kind and provocative letters. So I'd already written more than one at this time, but he says they were kind and provocative, right? So that's nice that I'm a 24-year-old, yet the letters I'm writing him are provocative, right? I appreciate your confidence and will try to justify it in the future. While I am not in a position to offer predictions on specific policy actions of the Federal Reserve, I can assure you that the points you make are not lost on my colleagues and me. 
Thank you again for writing sincerely, Alan Greenspan. So he's saying the points that I am making are not lost on his colleagues and himself. And what are those points? And I remember I was critical of the Federal Reserve intervening to prop up the market, that this increase in liquidity was a mistake and that the Fed should sit back and let the free market run its course. And I think I reminded him of some of the problems that had been created in the past as a result of the central bank uh, manipulation and artificial suppression of interest rates and, and things like that. So I made these points and obviously he's saying, yeah, I hear you. Your points are not lost on me. And so he thanked me. And then after that, I wrote him another letter because I guess that letter you know, raised some questions that hadn't been answered. So I, I wasn't satisfied and I wrote him again. And then he wrote me again. So the first letter was dated November 3rd 1987. And I got the second one about a month later, December 2nd, 1987. Dear Mr. Schiff, thank you. Thank you for writing again to communicate your views on the risks facing the U.S. economy. My own belief is that rather than resigning ourselves to the fate of a recession as a method of correcting the distortions in the economy, we should face the problems creating those distortions and attempt to solve them. So here he's basically telling me, look, we shouldn't just let the market run its course. I probably said, look, you know, we need to correct the imbalances in the economy. That's what the recession is for. Don't interfere with the process. And he's saying, no, 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 let's interfere. Let's try to second guess the markets. We don't want to sit by and let the recession happen. Let's, you know, let's try to solve the problems using monetary policy, which I think was really the beginning of the mistakes that he would make throughout his tenure. And here he finishes up. A key here clearly is in the effort to rein in the federal budget deficit. It is crucial that Congress move quickly to enact the recent agreement in a manner that provides some assurance that durable deficit reduction has been achieved. (laughs) Well, obviously, that was a complete uh, failure. You know, Greenspan was hoping to get the deficits under control Instead, they they raged out of control. We now have an over $20 trillion national debt. It was a small fraction of that size back then. It was, you know, probably less than $2 trillion, and now it's 10 times as big. And I pointed out to Greenspan that if you're worried about the deficits, don't, you know, create liquidity. Don't make it easier for the government to finance them. And then this is how he concluded his letter. Meanwhile, it is incumbent upon the Federal Reserve to do what it can to foster financial conditions consistent with sustainable non-inflationary economic growth. Sincerely, Alan Greenspan. But meanwhile, I think that this really set the tone of how he would react not only to the 87 crash, but all the various uh, problems that happened in the 1990s and the latter part of the 1990s that resulted in the dot-com bubble that crashed in in 01, that caused him to inflate a bigger bubble in the housing market and reflate the stock market bubble that crashed in in 2008 and the financial crisis that ensued. I bet that Alan Greenspan, if he remembers these letters, you know, (laughs) probably secretly wishes that he followed my advice, that he did what I told him. I mean, I said, hey, let the market function. And he tried to substitute his own knowledge for the market. He tried to spare the market the short-term pains associated with that correction. And instead, we just printed money and, and, and tried to solve the problems through monetary policy. And of course, 
we ended up with much bigger problems and enabled the government to run enormous debts, deficits that were concerning Alan Greenspan back in 1987. Well, it was his own actions that enabled those deficits to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Had Alan Greenspan followed my advice and been more independent, then he would have forced some fiscal discipline on the Congress. Instead, by following in his new path that he was blazing, he was the enabler. And so the, the government did not have to do what he wanted as far as addressing the deficits, precisely because he acted in a manner that he indicated to me he would in these letters. And he was ignoring the good advice that a 24-year-old kid was giving him. And he should have known better because a lot of what I knew, you know, I learned from, from him or him, my father or people like him that were Austrian free market economists. And apparently he forgot all that or he still remembered it, but he was afraid to actually act on it. He, you know, maybe because he was the Fed chairman, he kind of felt that it was his responsibility to try to do something uh, to mitigate the short-term political ramifications. And I'm sure when the, you know, stock market crash happened, there was a lot of pressure on the Fed to try to, you know, put a floor beneath the market, to try to prevent the stock market crash from turning into a recession. And so he did whatever he could uh, to spare the economy and investors from having to deal with that. And I guess that was the beginning. That was like the first time he took the drug and maybe, you know, he liked it, right? It was a, it was a good uh, result and everybody liked him and he was a hero and all of a sudden he got hooked on it. And every time there was a problem, he, he relied on the same drug and he became a complete drug addict. And, you know, and, and the, you know now we know what, what happened, although we haven't even seen the complete consequence yet because the party ain't over because the the drug habit was continued by Bernanke and now Yellen and we'll see who um, is going to uh, replace uh, Janet Yellen. In fact, the stock market rallied a little bit today on the close to finish at a new record high. Uh, The news was out that uh, Jerome Powell is, you know, most likely going to be uh, the next Fed chairman. I guess the odds on him got up or maybe all the meetings are over and the rumors are that, you know, he's the favorite. And, you know, we just had these rumors, what was it, last week, uh, John Taylor had a good meeting, and I said on this podcast that I did not think that the president would go with a guy like John Taylor, too big a risk, especially now that uh, President Trump has staked his presidency on the stock market rally. The last thing he wants to do is take a chance on a guy that might actually let interest rates go up and rain on that parade. I think Jerome Powell is pretty much likely to continue uh, with the easy monetary policy And at the first sign of trouble, uh, I think he's likely to reverse course. He's probably likely to be more of a Trump guy than Yellen and probably more inclined to help him get reelected. He may even lean Republican. We know that Janet Yellen is a Democrat. Uh, But certainly if Trump were to uh, make Powell the chairman, he would, you know, owe uh, some debt to Trump and some loyalty to Trump and the administration and want to continue that administration uh, so that he could get reappointed. Uh, by, uh, you know, during the second term of Trump. So I think Trump could be pretty sure that uh, Powell will do whatever he can to try to keep the air in the bubble. That means QE4, QE5, whatever. Remember, Donald Trump said he's a low interest rate guy. And so he needs a low interest rate Fed, especially since, you know, he is now the biggest cheerleader for the stock market. And so he's going to need a guy like like that. But all these guys are following the, the playbook written 
by Alan Greenspan and a playbook that I knew when I was 24 was the wrong playbook, that it was fraught with, uh, with problems. Now, little did I know that 30 years later, right, they would still be blowing air in this bubble. I mean, the one thing that Greenspan succeeded in doing is propping up the stock market. Look, I mean, we're down 23,000. We're 10 times what we were in 1987 before the crash. So Alan Greenspan policies did work if the goal was to make the stock market go up. But I would say the U.S. economy structurally was in much better shape 30 years ago than it is today. I mean, we had a much better balance of payments. We had much lower debt. We had a healthier economy. We had a higher real standard of living. I mean, yes, we had been in decline. I mean, there are a lot of problems that, that predate the 87 crash. I mean, we were already on the downhill, uh, but that accelerated. And so we have had a decline in our standard of living as a result of the policies of Alan Greenspan and now the people that have followed in his footsteps because we've been trying to prop up the markets at all costs, because we've kept interest rates artificially low, because we've truncated recessions and not allowed the markets to correct all the imbalances and fix the problems. We've been building new recoveries on phony foundations and all this, you know, uh, masquerade, uh, you know, with cheap money and, and, and quick fixes and, and more debt. Uh, we've, we've just built this huge, gigantic pyramid of bubbles that has yet to come crashing down, but I think we are headed for that currency crisis, that sovereign debt crisis. That is the ultimate end game. And again, I believe Alan Greenspan would now agree with me. I think he understands the error of his ways, even if he doesn't want to you know, throw stones considering the glass house that he lives in. But as I said, I think privately he regrets a lot of what happened. I think uh, he is pretty much on the same page as me as far as where he thinks we're headed. Uh, and um, if he can go back in time, you know, maybe he would give those letters another look and maybe decide for the sake of posterity that he should have taken my advice or really taken his own advice. Because really what my letters were doing back then, I was simply um, using Greenspan to critique Greenspan. I was introducing the elder Greenspan to his former younger self and, and trying to see if I could use the younger Greenspan uh, to try to convince uh, the older Greenspan uh, that he should do something different. And I, I was unsuccessful, but maybe he wished that I had, I had actually been able to accomplish that. Turning to some other news, Donald Trump met with the governor of Puerto Rico today, and I was watching part of their news conference where the president you know, basically gave his hurricane relief efforts a 10, I guess on a score of 1 to 10, he, he was a 10 or... His administration was a 10 as far as uh, their response. But the interesting part about the meeting was that Trump acknowledged that we're going to have to help Puerto Rico. We're going to give them some grants. We're going to loan them some money. And, of course, you know what they need is grants. The last thing they need is more loans because they can't even repay the loans that they have already taken. But Donald Trump went out of his way to point out the fact that, look, if we're going to loan Puerto Rico any more money or if any private investors are going to loan Puerto Rico more money to rebuild, that all that debt is going to have to be senior to any of the debt that already exists, which is pretty much tantamount to saying that debt is worthless, which I've been saying for a long time. But you're talking about over $70 billion of debt. Let's say Puerto Rico has to borrow another 50 to to $100 billion. That's all going to be senior 
to that 70 billion? I mean, what's the chance that that 70 billion is ever going to get a nickel, right? Pretty much nothing. These bonds are still trading for 30 cents on the dollar. I'm not sure what idiot is willing to pay 30 cents for something that's really not even worth three cents. Although I'm not really sure legally how they do this. I mean, I know they have that board that's set up because it's almost like a debtor in possession type financing where the new money borrowed uh, can be senior to the existing debt. But the reality of it is, if Puerto Rico has to borrow another $50 billion to, to repair the damage from the hurricane, they're not going to be able to pay, repay those loans any more than they can repay the loans they got now. So this whole thing is just like an exercise in futility. It's mental masturbation to think that you're going to loan Puerto Rico another 50 to $100 billion and somehow that the money is going to get paid back. I mean, maybe maybe if it's a 100-year bond and it's interest only or something like that, I don't know, maybe they can come up with some kind of crazy terms. Uh, but there's no way that they'll be able to do it. But I guess the important thing is, hey, let's get the money over there. Maybe they can, Puerto Rico can start rebuilding. But clearly, they can't borrow money unless all the new debt can be senior to the existing debt. And then maybe there's a chance that it would get repaid. But I think until you officially wipe that debt off the books, it still might be risky to even make the loans uh, because there's still that unknown out there. And if Puerto Rico has all this debt and they're, and they're tied up in court and their creditors are suing, it's going to complicate the rebuilding and it's going to make it more difficult to even service or repay this new debt if the specter of the old debt is still out there. Uh, you know, and still hanging around the neck of the island like like an albatross. But, you know, that debt, I have no idea why people are still buying it. But that, 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 that really, they need to just restructure that, write it off, and get it done. I don't know how many times Trump has to allude to that fact. Uh, but, you know, I still read all these articles. I mean, some of these hedge funds are still saying, well, it'll be terrible for Puerto Rico if they don't repay this debt because they'll never be able to borrow any more money. I mean, like, yeah, that would actually be a good thing uh, if they if they didn't borrow more money. It'd be better not to have to repay this. But obviously now they need to borrow money if they're going to rebuild, but they can't possibly borrow money if they have to repay this money they've already borrowed. It's impossible. Nobody would lend them money if they were behind this existing debt and to think that they can repay all the new money they're going to borrow plus the old debt, it's absolutely ridiculous. So these guys that are still trying to claim that it's in Puerto Rico's interest uh, to repay this debt, I mean, this is such self-serving nonsense. And a lot of these hedge funds do. They bought the debt for pennies on the dollar anyway. And so, you know, even if they were to get paid in full, it would be a windfall. They'd make a huge profit. Yet they're still arguing with a straight face that that's what the island should do. But I want to talk about the election results down in New Zealand. Those are uh, a lot more uh, interesting. You know, I have an interest in New Zealand. I've been investing uh, in New Zealand stocks for a long time. In fact, the first foreign stocks I really started to buy in the 1990s uh, were in New Zealand. And uh, what attracted me to New Zealand was the major economic reforms that happened under a guy by the name of Roger Douglas, who was actually part of the Labor Party, which was the left-wing party and still is, or one of the left-wing parties in New Zealand. But New Zealand was basically bankrupted by socialism, big government. In fact, it was the poster child. I mean, it wasn't Scandinavia. I mean, it was New Zealand that everybody touted as being this model of the combination of capitalism and socialism, right? Everybody loved New Zealand from the left. 
And then they were broke. I mean, the country was completely broke and it went through a massive uh, collapse. And then they had tremendous free market reforms. I mean, they, they, they went from being the most regulated and highly taxed country in the world, or one of the most, to one of the freest countries in the world with the lowest taxes and the fewest regulations. And it really were free market reforms that were ironically led uh, by, by the left. And in fact, that may have been the reason that they were able to achieve it was because the, the impetus came from the left. Had the right tried to do this, the left would have resisted it as though this is heartless, this is cruel. Uh, but because it was the leadership was from the left, obviously the right was going to go along with it. And so it was great. And uh, I thought, you know, this is a great country because the people there know how bad socialism is. They had a belly full of it. It wrecked their economy. They had thrown it up. And now they had gone completely 180. The pendulum had swung dramatically to the other direction. I said, this is kind of, I want to get involved here. I want to invest in this country. And so I, I, you know, I started buying a lot of stocks down there. But today, I'm worried about the pendulum going the other way. I mean, it already has. I mean, they, they're not as good. New Zealand is not as free as it was. Because over time, you know, some of these laws have crept back into the economy. And, and so they've, they've, they've whittled away at some of the achievements that were initially made. Because as you get farther and farther away from the crisis, you know, the electorate forgets. And, you know, the call of socialism now is more tempting to a younger generation that really doesn't remember how bad things were before when the socialists wrecked the economy. And they hear stuff about redistributing the wealth and we have to make New Zealand, the economy has to work for everyone and capitalism needs to be friendlier and, you know, you know we need to raise the minimum wage and we need this, that, you know. All of a sudden, this stuff sounds good again to a bunch of people who don't know any better. And, and so little by little, you know, you start giving up some of the advances that you've made as far as, uh, you know, becoming more free. Uh, but New Zealand has been prosperous, uh, you know, since the financial crisis. They've done very well relative to other OECD nations. Uh, but in this most recent election, the National Party uh, lost a couple of seats. They're still or they are still the largest party, uh, but they didn't have a, a majority. And so the uh, Labor Party, together with the Greens, which are even to the left of Labor, right, uh, but even if you add those two parties together, they had fewer seats than national. But then there's another party, the New Zealand First Party, which is a populist uh, party, uh, you know, anti-immigration, also, you know, jack up the minimum wage, you know, New Zealand First, New Zealand for New Zealanders, this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, they want enough seats to make this guy Winston Peters, who's been the head of that party, I think, since it started, uh, the kingmaker. And he got to decide... Who was going to be the prime minister? Was it going to be the head of the, the National or the head of the Labor Party? Because whoever he aligned himself with, they would be able to form a government because they would now have, uh, have a majority. And so just uh, yesterday, he announced that he had decided to go with the Labor Party, which means this, this woman, uh, Yacinda Arden, 37-year-old uh, gal. This is you know the youngest, I think, prime minister uh, in uh, New Zealand for more than 150 years, 37 years old. She doesn't even have that much experience, I don't even think, in government. All of a sudden, she's, uh, you know, the head of the entire country. Though it is a small country. I mean, so, I mean, there, there are cities in the United States that are larger than the entire country. So it's almost like being mayor, right, of a, of a large city. Uh, but she's the prime minister of uh, the entire country. But I am worried 
about what this means for the New Zealand dollar, which is down about 2% uh, on the news. You know, one of the things that they want to do is they want to go after the Reserve Bank. I mean, the New Zealand Central Bank, they have an inflation goal. Initially, when they first started it, they had to keep inflation below 2%, right? It was one of the first central banks with an inflation ceiling. It wasn't a target. The mandate was to keep inflation below 2%, not to keep it at 2%, but below 2%. They later changed it. There was some political pressure, and they changed it to keep it between 2 and 3 So it went from below 2 to now 2 to 3 But now they want to change it. I think they want to change the mandate to make it more like the Fed so that they also have a mandate to create, you know, to keep to create jobs or to keep unemployment low, as if central banks... You know, as if monetary policy has anything to do with the unemployment rate. It doesn't. But somehow they believe it and they want to they want to charge the, the Reserve Bank with the job of trying to create jobs by printing money or keeping interest rates lower for longer because somehow they think that higher rates might interfere with job creation. You know, part of the irony of it is one of the things that the that the Labor Party wants, and particularly New Zealand first, is they're upset at housing prices being too high. Right. Because housing prices have been rising and a lot of immigrants have come in to New Zealand and have been buying up housing. And so the extra demand for houses by immigrants who want to live there. And it's a great country, high on the scores of economic freedom. There's a lot of reasons. I know a lot of Americans. I have had several clients that have renounced their U.S. citizenship and moved to New Zealand. And um, so people want to go there. And so that helps put pressure on housing prices. But one of the reasons that residential housing prices are so high in New Zealand is because interest rates have been too low. I mean, they're not as low as they are here or in Europe or Japan, but historically, interest rates in New Zealand are very low relative to their historic averages. And that is one of the reasons that real estate prices are so high. Yet they're objecting to high real estate prices, but what they want is even cheaper money. They want a reserve bank that prints even more money and keeps interest rates even lower. Well, those those two goals are at odds with one another. I mean, if they want lower real estate prices, then let the reserve bank raise interest rates and that'll help push uh, prices down. But they don't want that, really. I mean, they just use this uh, because it was good politics. And there's a lot of resentment because there's maybe a lot of people in New Zealand that would like to buy a house, but they can't afford it. And one of the reasons they can't afford it is because well, they see all these foreigners coming in and buying up houses. So one of the things that they want to do is they want to make it illegal. This is actually what they're talking about. They want to make it illegal for foreigners to buy uh, New Zealand real estate. At least the way I've read about it, it's houses that are already built. I mean, maybe you could buy raw land and build your own house, but you can't buy a house that's already been completed. Now, what is the impact of that going to be? Well, obviously, that is going to be very negative for the value of existing uh, New Zealand residential real estate because you knock out a lot of potential buyers. If I have a piece of property in New Zealand and I can only sell it to people who live in New Zealand, I can't sell it to somebody who, who is not a New Zealand uh, citizen, uh, well, then that limits the potential pool of buyers. So you have less demand. So the price is going to come down. Now, you know, the ironic thing about it is high real estate prices help create additional supply, right? Because if real estate prices are high, relative to the cost of construction and the price of land, then more people are going to build houses because there's profit there. But if by making it so foreigners can't buy, if the price of real estate goes down to the point where, hey, you can't even construct real estate profitably anymore, 
because maybe the prices go down to the point where the cost of the land and the raw materials now exceeds what you can sell a house for. Now there's no more new construction. You screwed up the construction industry, but now you're also not going to have additional houses that people that live in New Zealand might be able to buy. So it's going to backfire. And of course, what might happen is a lot of uh, people who might have otherwise bought houses will just rent them, right? If you're not a New Zealand citizen, if it's illegal to buy a house, well, you can rent the house. So maybe you're going to rent the house that you would have bought. That still means that the house is not on the market for a New Zealander to buy because it's been rented by a foreigner. But meanwhile, real estate prices have fallen based on the fact that foreigners could no longer buy the, the real estate. So this is all this kind of stuff is going to backfire. And then I read, too, that they, they want to spend government money building houses and sell them cheaply uh, to New Zealanders, which sounds like a disaster of a program. I mean, it, why would you want to limit private construction and then have the government, you know, take tax money to build houses? I mean, those are going to be some overpriced houses, and they're not going to have as good quality as the ones that would be built privately. So you're going to have crappier homes that are more expensive. And what, then you're going to sell them at a discount uh, uh, to New Zealanders. I mean, this is all some kind of a socialist policy that doesn't sound like it's going to work. Meanwhile, you know, they're going to jack up the minimum wage. I mean, they know we know they're going to do that. In fact, the, the New Zealand First Party wants a $20 an hour uh, minimum wage, 20 New Zealand dollars. And the New Zealand dollar is worth about, what, 70 cents or so. So it's not like 20 U.S. dollars, but it's a lot of money. And it's right now, I think the minimum wage is 14 and a half or 15 and a quarter, something like that. It's still a pretty decent minimum wage. In fact, New Zealand at least has like a, a training wage uh, for workers. I think if you're, you know, younger or for the first year, you can get a lower minimum wage. So they, at least they acknowledge that if you're 16, 17 years old or you're just starting out, there's still a minimum wage. But it's, it's not quite as high as the, the official minimum wage or the adult minimum wage. But obviously, when they start raising the minimum wage, it is going to create a problem in the labor market. In fact, not only do they want to raise the minimum wage, but they want to increase the amount of money. The, there, there's a mandatory paid uh, maternity leave in New Zealand, and they want to, they want to greatly expand uh, how long, if you're an employer and one of your employees has a baby, they want to expand the period of time in which you have to pay uh, your employee even though they're not working, right? So then you got to pay the employee who's not working, and then you got to hire a substitute employee to do that person's job, and then you got to train that person and pay that person until the person who decided to have a baby wants to come back. In which case, you got to give them the job back, and you got to, I guess, get rid of the person that you hired temporarily, even though you spent uh, some money or time training them. Now, you know, maybe you could use them someplace else, or hey, maybe one of your other workers is having a baby, and you can. You know, instead of firing him, you can shift him over and he could substitute for the other employee. But, you know, all this is going to accelerate the trend of automation in New Zealand. You know, my, my largest investment that I have personally in New Zealand is in a restaurant company down there. I started buying the stock over 20 years ago. And this is, you know, it's a perfect example of the success of long-term investing because, you know, even 10 years after I started buying the stock, uh, it was worth less than what I had paid. So I had bought it as an out-of-favor stock, undervalued. Uh, now it's worth almost 10 times what I paid for it. So it's had a huge run uh, since bottoming out in, in 2008. Uh, but I've held on to it. And you know, I think now every three or four years, the dividends I get equal my entire investment in the company, which I, you know, which I made, again, in the late 1990s. So I've gotten my money back many, many times over 
yet I still have this position that's worth you know a couple million bucks. So uh, it's been a successful uh, investment for me. There's still a lot of my clients that own the stock, even though I you know they've owned it for 10, 20 years, and I've never really uh, had a reason to sell it. I mean, things like this get make me nervous uh, about it. But I know that they've already started experimenting with with kiosks, right, where people can go in and order from a kiosk and not have to use a human being. And to the extent that they really jack up the minimum wage, that's exactly what they're going to end up doing. More and more of their restaurants are going to get automated uh, and they'll they won't have to use as much of the overpriced labor. And of course, you know, these machines don't have babies, so you don't have to pay them uh, when they're not there. I mean, they just they're always there. They're always working. They don't make mistakes. They don't get sick. They don't sue you. Uh, You know, you don't have to worry about sexual harassment or discrimination. Right? You just have to maintain them and replace them eventually if, if they if they wear out. But the more expensive the government makes labor, the cheaper it makes replacing it with a labor saving device because you increase the return. Because when you make an upfront investment in a machine, what is the return? The return is the wages you don't have to pay in the future. And so the higher the wage you're required to pay, the bigger the return on the investment. And you know you always have to measure the upfront cost of the machine versus the future savings by not having to hire anybody. So the cost is what it is. And the more you save by not hiring people, the better the return on the investment. And you know obviously... If there was no minimum wage, it might mean that uh, labor was a good deal and there was there was no return on the investment. It wouldn't make any sense to automate. But when the government artificially increases the cost of hiring people, then it artificially increases the return to making an investment so that you don't have to hire people. So I think that is going to continue to go on. And it may end up benefiting the company I own because they have the economies of scale. They're a major franchisee. They have a lot of restaurants. Uh, they're a publicly traded company. They can afford to, to lay out the money up front to save on future labor costs so they can remain competitive. Some of the mom and pop competitors, they may not have the ability uh, to raise prices or pass on the higher wages. They might just have to go out of business, uh, which would lessen the competition for this company. And of course, if they drive down the value of the New Zealand dollar, they get more inflation. Now it costs more to make the food. Uh, imports are more expensive. So you know, there could be a lot of problems. I'm hoping uh, that uh, that this coalition doesn't last too long, that they don't do too much damage uh, before they change government again. But it just shows you that, that the dangers of democracy, this is what happens when people vote. Uh, they don't understand economics. They don't understand history. And now the country is being led by a 37-year-old. You know, I mean, how much experience does this young woman have? I mean, does she has she run any businesses? What does she actually know? Um, I think the people are really taking a chance and they're, you know, on, on screwing up a good thing. Right. They got a good thing going in New Zealand. Is it perfect? No. Right. Right. They should have no minimum wage. You know, but, you know, they, they, they've made a lot of progress. They're in much better shape than they were in, in the 1970s and 1980s. And this is a step backwards. Hopefully, it's not the first of many. Hopefully, it's just a misstep. Uh, because, you know, they did go, they did go back to labor uh, a while ago. And then this government has been in power for about nine years. So they went to the labor for a while. And then they went back to the National Party. And so hopefully for New Zealand and for, you know, personally for the investments that I have down there, but more importantly for the people of New Zealand, uh, I hope that this, uh, that this experiment it uh, doesn't last very long, that people are quickly disillusioned uh, with the promises of the left 
and that there's not too much pain uh, in, in the interim, and then you know they they can vote for change again. In fact, that's kind of what Winston Peters said uh, when he went with Labor. He said, "Well, you know, the, the voters want to change. Well, I don't know that they want the type of change uh, that the left is likely to provide. So hopefully, before too long, they'll want to change back." 